This episode is brought to you by the American Urological Association. Good evening, and welcome to the AUA's PARP Inhibitors Genetic Testing and Advanced Prostate Cancer course. We strive to offer outstanding educational courses and greatly appreciate your evaluations and general feedback so that we can continuously improve our program. The AUA is accredited by the ACCME and designates this activity for a maximum of 1.0 AMA PRA Category 1 credits. Evaluations are very important to us. Course evaluations and CME credit will be administered electronically on AUA University immediately following this course. As we at the AUA continue to develop virtual education that meets your needs, we especially welcome your feedback regarding both the content and the format following this program. All persons in a position to control the content of an AUA educational activity are required to disclose any relevant financial relationships with any commercial interest. Please visit the AUA University to view faculty and education council disclosures. You are prohibited from using or uploading content you accessed through this activity into external applications, bots, software, or websites, including those using artificial intelligence technologies and infrastructure, including deep learning, machine learning, and large language models and generative AI. The AUA would like to thank Pfizer Inc. for providing an independent educational grant in support of this webinar. Coding advice given during presentations are the opinions of the presenters and may not have been vetted through the AUA for accuracy. Please verify accuracy prior to report reporting on medical claims. And finally, I'd like to introduce and expend, extend a very special thank you to our moderator, Dr. Ashley Ross, for his time, talent, and expertise in developing this program. Dr. Ashley Ross is an associate professor of urology at the Northwestern Feinberg School of Medicine, where he additionally serves as the clinical director of the Polsky Urological Institute. As an expert in prostate cancer, he focuses on the development, testing, and implementation of novel diagnostics and therapeutics with the goal of reducing the suffering from prostate cancer. Thank you, Dr. Ross. Thank, thanks so much and, and welcome everybody. So, you know, based on the documented need um, from the AUA Advanced Prostate Cancer Global Needs Assessment, and to further address the identified educational, and gap, educational gaps and barriers in advanced prostate cancer care, we put together a three-part educational series to update urologists and advanced prostate cancer providers and others on PARP inhibitors and, and their use in the treatment of prostate cancer. The focus of this panel will be on the significance of genetic testing for prostate cancer patients and guiding the, um, our, our care teams on accurate interpretation of those results. We have a few learning objectives. Um, these include reviewing the recommended criteria for genetic testing for prostate cancer patients and currently available gene panels and options for testing in men, explaining the importance of testing for germline and somatic mutations and their implications for the use of PARP inhibitors, to describe workflow for genetic testing and utilization of genetic counselors, and to finally describe the, the process of genetic counseling, the importance of pretest counseling, and discuss the benefits, limitations, and potential implications of germline testing to patients and their faculty. I'm, I'm sorry, and their family. So I'm glad to be joined tonight by three excellent uh, faculty and experts in the field. I want to um, welcome them in just a second. I first want to uh, um, uh, again mention that this is the second of a three-part series regarding PARP inhibitors that is being brought to you by the AUA. And again, we're focusing on genetic testing. We have with us Dr. Veda Giri. She's a professor of medicine and medical oncology with a specialization in clinical cancer genetics. She's the division chief of clinical cancer genetics at Yale and director of the cancer genetics and prevention program and director of the early onset cancer program at Yale Cancer Center and Similau Cancer Hospital, where she leads an integrated and comprehensive net effort in cancer genetic evaluation to inform precision medicine, tailored cancer screening, and hereditary cancer risk. Uh, hi, Dr. Geary, and thanks for being with us. 
Dr. Colin Pritchard is also with us. He's a pathologist, physician scientist, and director of genetics and solid tumors in the Solid Tumor Laboratory at the University of Washington Medical Center. His research has focused on the development and utilization of innovative molecular diagnostics for the detection of germline and somatic tumor mutations to guide precision medicine. Welcome, Dr. Pritchard. And finally, one of my colleagues at Northwestern, Dr. Brittany Simonak, who's a genetic counselor um, who focuses on genital urinary-related um, hereditary cancer syn syn syndromes at the Northwestern Feinberg School of Medicine. She's our lead genetic counselor in our GU department, and she's also the head of our early detection in genetics BRCA clinic for men or EDGE clinic for men at uh, Northwestern, as well as our um, VHL uh, clinical uh, care center. Um, good evening, Dr. Simonak. So, you know, as we go into the discussion, I first want to recap the, um, you know, the previous session for those who, who had not made it. Based on recent positive clinical trials, PARP inhibitors have been approved for the treatment of selected men with metastatic cancer-resistant prostate cancer. In the first-line metastatic cancer-resistant prostate cancer setting and beyond, if a man's been previously treated with a novel hormonal therapy like abiraterone or enzalutamide, then men with one of 14 different mutations in homologous recombination repair machinery are eligible for a PARP inhibitor, namely olaparib monotherapy. Additionally, in the first line or in subsequent treatment lines for metastatic CRPC, men with one of 12 mutations in homologous recombination repair machinery are eligible for telazoparib combined with enzalutamide, regardless of whether or not they had had previous exposure to an antigen receptor signaling inhibitor like enzalutamide or abiraterone. Further, men with pathogenic alterations or loss in BRCA2 or BRCA1 are eligible for first-line regimens including olaparib and abiraterone or niraparib and abiraterone. Again, in the CRPC setting, first-line, regardless of exposure um, for, to um, previous antigen receptor signaling inhibitors, and for rucaparib monotherapy, if they've been previously treated with an antigen receptor signaling inhibitor and chemotherapy. The largest benefit oncologically in these different studies seems to be in men with BRCA alterations. So now that we're all up to speed, we're going to really dive into genetics and genetic testing um, for men with metastatic prostate cancer. And Dr. Geary, we'll start with you. Which men with metastatic prostate cancer should be tested for alterations in their homologous recombination repair machinery? Yes, thank you. It's certainly a pleasure to be here with everyone. Um, and, and that is such an important question. Um, really, uh, as you just you know, said, the, the treatment of metastatic prostate cancer has really become revolutionized now with the precision therapies and the targeted therapies. But in it, really, truthfully speaking, all men with metastatic prostate cancer should actually be offered germline testing. Um, this can be done at various time points in the course of their care. Uh, we know, of course, that from an oncological perspective, it could be at the time when uh, there's treatment decisions that need to be made for PARP inhibitors. But oftentimes, um, it's best to even introduce it at the beginning of their care when they are first diagnosed with metastatic disease or even prior to that, as we'll get to uh, later on. So it's really uh, important to think about offering all men with metastatic prostate cancer um, germline testing. And this really has been because of the rates of these um, pathogenic variants, or we can make flip-flop and say mutations at some point in our discussion, but pathogenic variants, particularly in DNA repair genes, um, they've been reported at the rates of around 11 to 15% for the germline alterations, depending on the studies in a host of genes. So BRCA1, BRCA2, ATM, et cetera. So um, it's just really becoming important to think about this, not only for eligibility for PARP inhibitor therapy, but also uh, to think about the hereditary implications for men and their families. And, and, and that's definitely in line with the AUA best practices. They also they recommend you know testing all men with metastatic prostate cancer for um, these homologous combination repair deficiencies, even in the home run sensitive setting, as you mentioned. And you also briefly touched on this, but specifically, are there other men other than those that have, have metastatic prostate cancer that should be screened for genetic alterations? 
Yeah, so the NCCN guidelines also support um, offering germline testing to men with high risk or advanced prostate cancer. So T3, T4, PSA greater than 20 at diagnosis, um, grade group three or four. Uh, but also even for men that have earlier stage, more localized prostate cancer, there the guidelines are based on family history uh, in terms of qualifying for genetic testing. Furthermore, men with prostate cancer who are of Ashkenazi Jewish ancestry also uh, would be uh, recommended to be offered germline testing. And the family history criteria can be complex, but in essence, they're meant to capture hereditary syndromes like hereditary breast and ovarian syndrome, uh, cancer syndrome, Lynch syndrome, and hereditary prostate cancer. So one other thing to keep in mind is definitely thinking of testing men where there's a genetic mutation known in a blood relative. So this is the cascade testing piece that you had mentioned. Wonderful. And Dr. Pritchard, let's take as a case example, a guy coming in with metastatic cancer-resistant prostate cancer. And as Dr. Geary said, we're trying to make a decision about their eligibility for PARP inhibitor therapy. What are the different ways in which we could test them for genetic alterations of genes involved in homologous recombination repair? Yeah, so it gets complicated because there's we were talking about testing germline, which Dr. Gary just highlighted the importance of that, you know, for both treatment and family. But but if we're we're focusing on PARP inhibitor therapy, we also have to test the tumor tissue or a surrogate for that, which could be circulating tumor in the blood, right? So there's really three main modalities that we're thinking about when we're thinking about BRCA and similar genetic testing. And it's it's the germline, which is a blood test or saliva test. It's tumor tissue, which can be archived primary tissue in the setting of metastatic disease, because we realize that, you know, a lot of the time men won't have metastatic biopsy. It is ideal if that tissue is available, but the the mutations do tend to correlate um, or circulating cell-free DNA. Um, and, 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 you know, I think it's important to clarify that when we're thinking about these um, mutations, particularly BRCA2 being the really the, the heavy hitter, <laughs> that's the one, we can talk maybe a little bit more in granular detail that, you know, not all of these homologous recombination DNA repair genes are created equal, and the evidence um, for them as predictive biomarkers for PARP inhibitors is certainly not equal. But BRCA2, I think, by far and away has the most evidence as a predictive biomarker. So if we focus on that gene... Um, about half the time, you'll see it as an inherent, in, I'm talking about specifically men with metastatic prostate cancer here, in that population, about half the time you'll see it as a germline variant, an inherited variant, and about half the time you'll see it as an acquired variant only. So if we only tested the germline, we would miss half of the men who are eligible. So we really do need to test both. Um, and if we only test the tumor, um, we may miss that important familial information that might save the lives of your, you know, your sisters and your brothers, uh, you know, in your family. So, both are really critical. Um, and so, tumor tissue, I'd say, is, is really still the gold standard for getting that that tumor-based testing. But there is, of course, um, circulating cell-free DNA testing as a surrogate for tumor tissue, which is getting better. Um, I think we'll we'll talk a little bit more later and, and drill into that uh, particular modality. Yeah, and, and just to like kind of um, cap that, because that was a lot of valuable information. If someone's coming in, they have the metastatic cancer-resistant prostate cancer, and they are looking at at you in clinic, and they have not had previous germline testing, you're going to get their germline testing specifically to inform their family members and to look at their status, but you're also going to get somatic testing, prioritizing tissue but if tissue is not available, if, you know, if, if you, and us also for some other, others will do it for other reasons, you can get some circulating free tumor DNA. I don't know um, what your practice is personally. Do you ever just get all three just to have a sense of, you know, if, if the, for example, if it was not a truncal mutation and you're missing something, you can pick it up in the circulating free. Is that normally the practice? It depends on the scenario, but you make a good point. I mean, sometimes circulating cell-free DNA can be more sensitive to picking up a mutation because, of course, if you're sampling just one tumor site, it it may there may be heterogeneity and maybe you've missed it. On the other hand, you know, I don't think we have really good literature about whether these what you call non-truncal mutations are actually important or actionable, right? Because even though we might shrink the tumor of you know, one 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 sort of branch of your cancer that developed one of these mutations, well, is that really you know, going to be as effective? And I, I don't think we really have enough data to comment on that, but it sort of makes sense intuitively that 
Um, what you really want a drug is a mutation that's in all of your sites. But it's a great point. You are sometimes going to pick up mutations in the plasma, the circulating DNA, because it's sampling every metastatic site. Um, you might sometimes pick up mutations that are in some some sites and um, that that you wouldn't have just missed if you missed if you just if you just look at a single tumor tissue. But again, if you're looking at the primary tumor, um, uh, you know, like the the prostatectomy, or if the patient had a prostate biopsy. You know that, and that has the uh, a BRCA or or similar mutation that that um, makes you eligible for PARP. Usually, the good news is usually that does correlate with all the metastatic sites years down the road, and usually, yeah. So, yeah, yeah. And then you know, just to add complexity to all this, Dr. Simonak, you know, when we get back the results, you know, and we can think talk about germline testing and also somatic testing. We'll see, you know, calls like this is a likely pathogenic variant. This is a pathogenic variant. Sometimes we'll see that it's a variant of unknown significance. You know, can you talk a little bit about what those terms mean, how those calls are made perhaps, and if there's any different standards in some of the germline or somatic testing assays? Yeah, so when we are talking about classifications on the germline side of things, that is going to come down to a function of the classification criteria that's put forth by ACMG. And I, it's my understanding that there might be some updates coming to that fairly soon, but this is what's going to govern what the laboratories use in terms of information to determine if something is pathogenic or um, one of these inconclusives or variants of uncertain significance or like a benign, likely benign finding. And so if something is pathogenic, this is gonna be something that we know can be disease causing, is gonna increase the risk for cancer. There is evidence to support this being harmful and there's very specific criteria that go into um, classifying something as part of that. Can be part of population database information, can be functional data, could be whether or not this is correlated with disease in the literature. So there's a number of different things that go into that. If something's benign, then we don't have evidence to support that this is gonna be disease causing, this is normal human variation, but when we don't have enough criteria for it to fall into one of those categories clearly, then that's where it falls into this inconclusive or variant of uncertain significance where we just don't have enough data to say for sure whether or not this can be harmful. And so this is a function of getting additional people in the population tested. This is a function of more research being available to have more information out there. Um, I will say that when we talk about germline classifications, even though all the laboratories doing this testing are functioning under the same ACMG criteria, not necessarily every lab will have the same classification. So that's really something that I wanted to highlight. There is a public database um, called ClinVar, and as well as it's kind of like partner database ClinGen that provides a lot of information about classifications across laboratories. Um, so just wanted to flag that for everybody listening. But when we talk about classification on the somatic side, this is looking at different information in terms of like, does this have implications for clinical prognosis? What are the treatment implications that could come in? So there's different ways that we classify these on the germline and somatic side. And so you, you need both of those components of information because something um, coming up on the somatic side doesn't necessarily guarantee that it would be on the germline side and it's not gonna give you that clear delineation. Yeah, and that, you know, for the acronyms, the AC gym um, oh, yeah, is the American um, College the, of Genetic uh, Medicine, right? Cor yeah, correct. Yeah. And so, you know, on that point, so like there's these, um, you know, kind of the more stringency of the of the calls on the germline side, I think, than somatic. And, um, you know, and, and obviously they can all bank on the a same molecular registry, but some of them have larger genetic registries themselves. You know, Dr. Pritchard, you know, even beyond that, you know, there's a lot of different, and thankfully, there's a lot of different tests and companies that provide them. There's in-house laboratory um, tests. A lot of large institutions have developed, you know, are, is there a lot of concordance or discordance in the calls between the different, you know, commercially available um, next-gen sequencing testing and institutional testing? I mean, are they pretty concordant or is it one, you know, as good as the other? How do you go about that? Yeah, I mean, j just like anything in medicine, um, nothing's perfect, right? So there, there is unfortunately right now um, still some struggling with with the variant interpretation that Dr. Simia, uh, so, so, sorry, I'm saying, so, so, 
<laughs> I said your name wrong. So I said Simon. Um, uh, with Brittany, okay. we can all do first. We can okay, all. Okay. All right. Name. Sorry about that. Yeah, there, there, there really is some, um, some, some struggling um, with variant interpretation, even for these genes that we've studied so well for so long, like BRCA1 and BRCA2. Um, there's um, there's still some struggle. And so so there's a couple of issues in terms of discordance with interpretation of BRCA1, 2 variants and similar on different assays. One is the the variant interpretation, right? So just is it um, like was highlighted, is it is it pathogenic? Is it is it damaging or is it uncertain or is it or is it nothing? There's that. Um, there's also um, another issue that I think is quite important for PARP inhibitor therapy, which is that most of the commercial assays in particular right now that focus on somatic do not um, report out whether both copies of the gene are mutated. So when we're talking about, you know, so we all have two copies of every gene in our, in our genome, right? So we're talking about on the germline side, we're usually talking about just one inherited damaged copy of the gene, right? And that's enough to predispose you to cancer. But what actually happens in the cancer is the second copy gets damaged in some way, and then both copies are inactivated, and then that's what gives you the PARP inhibitor biomarker response. So we call that biallelic inactivation. Um, so to, to what we really need and want to have is, is a call of biallelic inactivation in the tumor setting, because you can, I'll give an example, um, for men that, for example, have Lynch syndrome or, or, or other causes that result in microsatellite instability um, cancer, um, that microsatellite instability that's caused by a different DNA repair pathway tends to hit the BRCA1 and 2 genes and mutate them and give them pathogenic mutations, but monoallelic, just one of the two copies. So we have no reason to think that those mutations, while pathogenic, are predictive of PARP inhibitor. And that's, that's one area where I think the commercial labs are really struggling because it's very difficult for a clinician to get back a report. It says, your, your prostate cancer patient has a BRCA2 mutation. It is pathogenic. You should use a PARP inhibitor. It says all that in the report, and yet none of that is true. And I mean, not none of it is true. The, the PARP inhibitor part is not true. The pathogenic part is true. The mutation is true. But the PARP inhibitor response part is probably not true because of the monolelic. So I think that's an important piece of interpretation. So, so we're struggling in both ways. I think it's getting a little bit better. Um, the academic institutions, I think, are probably doing a little bit of a better job in the interpretation just, you know, because it, it can, they can move maybe a little bit quicker in terms of um, updating assays and things. Um, but, but I think the commercial labs are, are starting to pick up on this, particularly as trials and um, are requiring this sort of monoallelic, biallelic um, call. So I think those are the, I, those are the two main issues I'd, I'd highlight. Um, just one more comment on that, too, because we'd... Um, um, uh, it was highlighted the, the the variant of uncertain significance, and that's such an issue, obviously, in the germline genetic space. And it's also um, it's also an issue on on tumor reports where there'll be uncertain results. And so, um, I just want to emphasize that an uncertain result is should be clinically treated the same as a negative result. You know, I think we've made it. We, we've really made it unnecessarily complicated for the busy clinician in the way we've done standard of care genetics. You know, my personal opinion is that we never should have reported these in the first place. We don't do that for other medical tests where, where we're always saying, well, it's uncertain. You do, we do it a little bit, but you know, we could have just said at the beginning, well, we're just gonna not report these things because, because you're not supposed to use them clinically, right? But we made this decision for whatever reason that we're going to report these uncertain indeterminate findings that are supposed to be treated as negative result, and then we're going to rely on the clinicians to understand that. So it's sort of our fault, but I want to really make that emphasis that that that, that should be treated the same as a negative result. Really, uncertain equals negative. Like, forget you even saw it. Uh, so that's that's my piece on that. <laughs> so I, I think there's actually, a, like, there's a... I agree with you completely. I think that um, they're just so I can make sure, because I'd be interested from the geneticist, I'm going to kind of deal, drive into this more. I think clinically, I absolutely agree with you. If you're thinking about a decision of will this person respond to a PARP inhibitor, if it's a VUS, a variant of significance, to treat that as negative, don't put them on a PARP inhibitor, they're extremely unlikely to respond. 
you know, I think this is a side point and just for the listeners out there, if there's any biotech out there, I'd love to see also like for things that are semi un, like unknown, if they're going to be significant or not, a variant of unknown significance, bringing in some bioinformatic data about like where that mutation is, what it might do to like a, the, the secondary or tertiary protein structure and stuff like that. This is maybe pie in the sky, but we're there with computing power now, but more important, more important is for the genetic counselors germline side. Dr. Geary, you know, Dr. Simon, Simonak, um, you know, Colin was saying, I, I wish they wouldn't even import the VUS. Is the VUS ever important or in your careers, have you ever seen a VUS become significant for the germline, you know, genetic predisposition for a cancer, not response to therapy? And how, how do you feel about that? Because it's a, it's like, it's an interesting statement, but provocative. Um. Oh, sure. Yes, I'll go ahead and take a stab. So uh, we have actually, you know, seen um, rarely that these variants of uncertain significance can actually get reclassified to likely pathogenic or pathogenic um, over time. And so in essence, the laboratory is collecting more data, more evidence about uh, the functionality of these variants. We saw a spike in this when RNA testing uh, came into um, the scene for classification and functionality assessment. Um, it's rare. It, it's you know, and, and at some reports say about five percent of these VUSs, um, not more than ten percent, uh, would be reclassified to likely pathogenic or pathogenic. The issue is if a patient was never ever told that there was an uncertain finding and the rare chance that this could be reclassified, it could be um, a blow to hear that actually went from a negative to actually there was a mutation. It's very rare. And I, I do see Dr. Pritchard's point as well, you know, for this, because for that rare subset, there's this entire uh, necessity for educating, you know, patients and providers about the fact that you don't act on VUSs. Um, but I'd love Dr. Simonak's, you know, thoughts on this too. Yeah, I I think this is this is a really tough situation because I I think of the one family that had an inconclusive result that did get reclassified to a positive. I was really suspicious that this variant was going to be a positive result. So you prepare the families in a little bit of a different way in terms of like, we probably found something, we need to be thinking about what this is gonna mean down the road, even if we're not gonna do anything with it right now. But also sometimes those are families that we're watching pretty closely anyways, versus maybe somebody that has an inconclusive result in a gene that really is not connected to anything that we're seeing in the family. So there's, there's different tiers of kind of concern and that is coming down the road with some ACMG information in terms of like tiering VUSs for suspicion, but I, I, there's still some value, but there it's up for debate yeah. as to and, how much needs to be reported. And, and again, I, I, I strongly agree with, uh, with Dr. Pritchard's assessment. When you're thinking about therapeutic choice, just look at the LPVs and PVs, base it on that. It's a different thing when you're thinking about germline and, and family predisposition. You know, there the person should probably know that that VOS is unlikely to be important, but may become important, and we should follow them a little bit differently. And they'll update the um, the gene assays as they get information. So, you know, now to make it even more complicated. So, Dr. Pritchard, you know, we're talking a lot about biallelic loss. Um, we had mentioned circulating free tumor DNA. You know, intuitively for me, you know seeing some of that loss in the circulating free tumor DNA might be harder. You know, can you talk about some of the false negatives and false positives of circulating free tumor DNA if we use that as our modality for testing? Yeah, it's really it's really good to just be very thoughtful when you're when you're gonna do a circulating cell-free DNA or CTDNA or liquid biopsy. These are other terms you hear around at test. So the first question I think you should be asking yourself is does my patient have any prostate cancer DNA in their blood, right? And you and the good news is there are actually metrics to know that before you do the test, right? So most of the companies, this is mostly in the commercial lab space. There are some institutions that, including ours, that offer it in-house, but that that's rarer. But most of the companies will, they'll take your specimen, right? And they'll run it. Um, there won't be any, any pre-screening to whether you have any cancer there or not, right? So it's standard of care and tissue testing that a pathologist reviews that specimen before it goes in for tissue genetic testing to make sure there's cancer there and enough cancer. That standard of care does not exist for circulating tumor DNA. So that's point number one. 
you know, so I like to give the analogy of it's like it's like you just completely miss the cancer if if you have no circulating tumor DNA, right? So in prostate cancer, it turns out that the PSA level um, does correlate to some extent with the circulating uh, tumor burden. You definitely want to be only testing in the advanced uh, in the in the metastatic setting, and you probably don't want to be testing even if the patient has undetectable PSA unless it's a unless it's a um, a tumor that's expected to be androgen receptor null and maybe not expressing PSA. But, but measures that you clinically think this patient has a high enough burden of disease, that's number one. So number two, when you get the test result, um, you know, you need to be really, really suspicious like you, were, like you were alluding to of both false negative and false positive. So the false positive results come from actual mutations um, that you'll pick up in, in the cell-free DNA blood plasma that didn't come from the cancer, right? So it turns out that our white blood cells accumulate mutations in the same genes inconveniently, even in genes like BRCA2 um, through a process called clonal hematopoiesis. I think that was one of the pretest questions. Um, and then even more inconveniently, clonal hematopoiesis is both associated with older age and with exposure to cytotoxic chemotherapy. So in the exact setting you're testing, an older man, because most men with metastatic prostate cancer are older, they have that risk factor, and most of them will have had docetaxel or similar um, you know, other cytotoxic chemotherapy. So they have every reason to have these um, so-called CHIP or clonal metapoiesis clones. We just use that acronym. And so you know, it turns out that um, you know, maybe even up to half the time when you find um, an actionable mutation <laughs> in the blood for PARP inhibitor, it's actually one of the, in a man with metastatic prostate cancer, it's actually not the prostate cancer. So that's a horrifying step, but it's the truth. So the good news is that the newer tests are, are doing better with this because it's very easy to fix this, that, pro that false positive problem. All you need to do is a white blood cell control. Because if you know what's in the white blood cells, then you can say, oh, that mutation in BRCA2 came from my white blood cells. It didn't come from the shed cancer DNA, right? And it couldn't be easier logistically because you can. what you can do is you just get one blood draw. You can take a whole blood um, as your white blood cell control because the white blood cells have so much more DNA than the cell-free DNA that they overwhelm it. And then you spin it down into a plasma and it's the same specimen you can do both tests from. So it's extremely easy logistically. It's just that... Most of the commercial assays have not been set up to, in that way. But the good news, like I said, is that, um, for example, you know, academic labs are, are doing it more paired, and there are a few commercial labs that are starting to do this approach. So I think the false positive problem will get better, but the false negative problem has to do with tumor burden and kind of just miss, you know, you, you just miss the cancer, you know, when you, when you did your biopsy. So, so if you think about, from the false negative standpoint, if you think about your disease state, does my patient really have enough burden? where this test might be useful, that's that's good to be thinking about before you do it. And then um, think about if you get a mutation, especially in one of these genes that is associated with clonal hematopoiesis, and those those major genes that matter and that'll be on panels are uh, ATM and CHECK2 in particular, because you know, those are two genes that are on labels. Um, BRCA2 to a lesser extent, but it's an important one because when you do find it, uh, uh, you know, it's it's really actionable. And then you'll see genes like p53. Those aren't those aren't on label for PARP inhibitor, but you'll see these are clues that if you see mutations in genes like that, especially at low levels, we call it a variant allele fraction. That just means the the level of the mutation. So if that level that that so-called variant allele fraction is teeny teeny tiny, like less than one percent, that's another clue that maybe this is coming from your white blood cells and not from your, from your cancer. So. Um, that, that's excellent. Um, you know, Dr. Dr. Geary, like say we did do the circulating tumor DNA and we found that the person had a, um, you know, some of them can can actually do calls of like a BRCA, you know, BRCA mutations, even BRCA loss. But say there's a BRCA mutation that was pathogenic and we put our gentleman on a PARP inhibitor and they have initially a response, but then progressive disease. And one of the advantages, say it's bone only, one of the advantages of circulating free tumor DNA is you can kind of, you know, send it again and see what's going on with the, in the milieu. Um, there's some talk about like reversion mutations and things like this that might be causing resistance. Can you just talk a little bit towards like, you know, should, do you, is it a normal practice to send 
you know, serial um, circling tumor DNA at progression? You know, what are you looking for in those cases? What might be like is this reversion mutation? What would that be mean or look like? Um, just talk a little bit towards that. Yes, absolutely. So there's still a lot of variability in uh, in practice uh, regarding the use of CT DNA testing. So um, kind of as a general point, oncologists may order um, CT DNA tests, as you mentioned, to help enhance their decision making for treatment, particularly at a point, say, for progression. So going from, say, hormone sensitive prostate cancer to metastatic castration resistant prostate cancer might be a time where we start to see more ordering of CT DNA tests. Um, but also progression after taxane-based chemotherapy when there's evidence of rising disease burden or uh, failure of response or uh, progression of disease. Um, it can also, in general, be ordered to look for um, DNA uh, repair gene mutations, um, but also other non-BRCA gene mutations as well, um, thinking about, you know, um, clinical trials or other types of therapies or treatments that might be helpful, you know, to patients. And just as you said, you know, if there's a lack of response uh, going on, um, the ctDNA testing may be ordered or could be helpful to look for these reversion events, um, particularly for BRCA1 and 2. Um, and these are these sort of these genomic alterations that can actually take, you know, the, the frame shift and kind of in frame back um, when there's a uh, reversion, um, kind of almost say, quote unquote, restoring functionality. And um, therefore, you know, taking down the response to part because those are now uh, uh, proficient, you know, in homologous repair. So, um, but still lots to learn, even in that scope uh, with this variability of testing and, and looking at these results for how to um, tailor treatment stop or start therapies. Um, it's really important to uh, bring back in what Dr. Pritchard just talked about, you know, in terms of the ac accurate interpretation and, and what these tests can tell us and maybe don't tell us so well yet. You know, um, I want to look at like two concepts um, sort of in the, in the next couple of minutes. You know, one is, um, you know, Dr. Pritchard had mentioned, and we'll get back to it in a second, a little bit about, you know, well, which which results are, are sort of bystander mutations that are going on? What's what's a causative mutation? You know, in the, and this is we we're really, I think he was referring to uh, a lot of the somatic mutations that can occur in, in tumors and other things. You know, before I move on from that concept, you know, Dr. Simonak, I, I wonder, like, you know, there's this, in the germline setting, um, there's this subject of, like, penetrance, uh, um, and, like, you know, I, I, I often see men in my clinic that have been cascaded, tested, and, and now there's a guy who's, like, 45, and he has a BRCA mutation and maybe a family history of prostate cancer. You know, what is this concept and, and what's that man's like destiny per se for like developing prostate cancer or other things? Mm -hmm. That's a great question. I, I think we're in a space where we're still learning a lot about this. And even though like Dr. Pritchard alluded, we've been doing genetic testing for BRCA1 and 2 for like 30 plus years at this point, if we think about it from like a research perspective, we're still learning more and more about the um, tumor spectrum and tumor profile of risk that we can see with these genes. And so while we've had a good understanding of like breast and ovarian cancer risk for women for quite a while, probably within the last 10 years, we've come to have a better understanding on the prostate cancer side, but we've only just within the last couple of years had more studies come out actually looking at kind of what do we anticipate the lifetime risk might be. And so I think we're going to see updates to this over time for individuals. And so we have genes that could fall into a high risk category like BRCA1 and 2. Does that mean that they're high risk for prostate cancer? Potentially, we, we have pretty good evidence on the BRCA2 side of things. But for some other genes, things like ATM or CHEP2, which might be on the low to moderate end of the spectrum where the overall cancer risks might be elevated over general population, but maybe not to the same extent that we see with high risk genes, we don't really know, like, is it true that it's low to moderate risk for prostate cancer for those genes where it's low to moderate risk for breast cancer? We don't really have an answer for that yet. So I feel like I spend a lot of time talking to my patients about some of the uncertainty that we have with risks around some of these genes and how we're going to learn more over time. But penetrance is really coming back to the fact that this isn't guaranteeing that somebody's going to develop a cancer. We just know that it's going to be a higher likelihood. The degree to that that likelihood is still variable and we're still learning more about it. 
So then I'm going to take this all the way and kind of mix, mix and match and confabulate and go from like germline and the guy who has like, you know, either low risk prostate cancer and a BRCA mutation, we don't know what it's going to do or no prostate cancer, we don't know if it's going to develop it or not. And I'm going to go back to Dr. Pritchard and say, okay, so now we're going to talk about what will manifest a phenotype or response to a PARP inhibitor. So we've mentioned previously that like, you know, BRCA alterations are more responsive. We've seen that in all the trials that came through for the PARP inhibitor registrations. You mentioned biallelic loss is like even, you know, that's really what you're looking for because that's going to really set up the deficiency in homologous recombination repair. Um, let's take some genes that are, you know, in the approvals for the for the FDA, or even if you look at you know BRCA one and two itself, is, is there anything else when you when you're looking at the panels um, for the NGS panels that can help tell you you know will this person respond to a PARP inhibitor or not? Like you can take these things that are other genes, like say the Paul B two or check like check two as you mentioned. Is there anything else that can help you tell your clinician, hey, I think you should try PARP inhibitor in this person, even though they're not a slam dunk BRCA two biallelic loss. Uh, yeah, if I understand your question, so you're talking about other genes beyond BRCA1 and 2 that might be predictive, but then also within BRCA1 and 2, are there some further clues on the report that this might be biallelic? Is that yeah, both, both those questions? Specifically, like, you know, I saw some flashes in the pan about, like, you know, there was a point where, you know, homologous combination deficiency will will result in a lot of loss of heterodiosity at lots of loci. Mm -hmm. And there was a point where the reports were, were reporting the loss of heterodiosity yeah. among all the sequence genes. They were reporting, as I think Dr. Simonak or Gary mentioned it, RNA-seq signatures of like, you know, propensity to be BRCA-like, you know. Yeah. And I'm wondering, yeah. like, what should we do with that as clinicians? Should we get into that? Should we not look at that? How do you, how, how do you advise your clinicians when they make decisions? It's emerging. I mean, we, I can say in full disclosure, we, we do that for our test. We report out this sort of BRCA-ness signature analysis that you're referring to. And so it turns out, but it is fairly new. And I'd say I'd caution, I'd really I, it's not that great of a biomarker right now is the, is the truth, right? So um, it's getting better. Um, it's devilishly hard to do right. So what we're doing there is we're looking at the sort of genomic scarring or the mutation signature associated with having the defective DNA repair pathway. So DNA, these genes are by and large in this homologous recombination DNA repair pathway. What happens is you when you have that DNA repair pathway out is that chromosome arms get lost. Um, and when you have that, that's called loss of heterozygosity, right? So you, most of these tests that look for the signature of brachiness are looking for the genome-wide burden of loss of heterozygosity as sort of a surrogate of, of, of that pathway being out. And it does work, but the problem is that there's lots of other reasons you can have loss of heterozygosity that are not related to homologous recombination DNA repair. So that's why I say it's not really a perfect biomarker. It's not as good, for example, as um, most people are familiar with microsatellite instability. That's a mutation signature-based biomarker that is the genomic scar of a different DNA repair pathway, mismatch repair. So I like to say that these HRD signature analyses are like the, they're like the MSI of BRCA. <laughs> Sometimes people understand that, right? And so, yeah, so long-winded way of saying these, these, these tests exist, not... Um, most of the commercial assays run these tests, but they haven't validated it specifically for prostate cancer. So like you'll have to often call up your lab and say, hey, do you have the LOH score on this one? Some of them will report it for prostate. It depends on what your lab you're doing. But regardless of whether they're kind of reporting it off the record or on the record, I would urge caution because these tests are, um, like I said, they're getting better. Um but they're not perfect yet. What we really need to do these tests very, very well is something like whole genome sequencing. You know, then we can do this really, really well. Because if you can do whole genome sequencing, you can measure all kinds of other surrogate mutation signatures beyond this, this burden of LOH. And so that's what lots of labs are getting into. So it's going to get there and it's already okay. It works. But I would I wouldn't use it as a solo biomarker unless you were you know <laughs> so it's it, I guess that's my my thoughts on that for for the mutation signature. Perfect. You know, in the last five minutes, I want to talk a little bit about workflow. So I think that the audience and certainly myself can appreciate sort of the complexity of this. And you imagine, you know, the patient sort of 
them, themselves dealing with their germline somatic, lots at stake for them and their families. So, you know, Dr. Geary, I'll talk a little bit about workflow in your clinics. You know, how do you prep the patient, if at all, for genetic testing, germline, specifically somatic, that kind of thing? And what are different ways to do it? And maybe you can go through what you do in your clinic and then general models that can be, that others could apply to, to think about how they want to do their workflow. Yes, absolutely. Um, because implementation and having access to this, you know, testing and informed decision making is is really, you call it like the next frontier because it really takes everyone collaborating together, the genetics folks, the oncologists, uh, the laboratory medicine, you know, it's it's a real team effort. So um, actually for our institution, we've established multiple pathways to be able to um, enhance access to genetic uh, evaluation and testing, uh, working together with our clinical teams. So we have the traditional pathway where clinicians can make a referral to our genetics program to be seen by a genetic counselor. And of course, the reason that we have this in place, it's, it's basically the standard, the gold standard, meaning that patients are seen by a trained genetics provider, the genetic counselors. This pre-test counseling visit is really to review information that is essential to make an informed decision for germline testing in this case, um, where they review, you know, what is um, the you know options for testing? What are the genes that could be relevant? What are additional cancer risks that could be uncovered from now multi-gene testing, which is really the way that you know testing is being done? What are these uncertain findings and the potential chance of finding you know uncertain results? Um, we know from prior studies that with multi-gene testing, about 30 to 35 percent of men who get tested for prostate cancer multi-gene testing will have a VUS. So you know, kind of educating about some of these things. Um, hereditary cancer implications, um, potentially, you know, things like the GINA law and thinking about what are the insurance implications for life insurance, you know, um, disability, long-term care. Um, and then, of course, you know, the uh, beyond for the family. So all of that information is discussed with patients, with the genetic counselor, and then the patient can proceed with genetic testing and the return of results to the patients. We do know, of course, that um, there is a relative shortage of genetic counselors because the volumes of patients that need germline testing are, are just on the rise. And so we've developed some other ways that uh, we can work with our clinical, uh, clinician teams, one of which is point of care. So we've worked with uh, developing a video and doing in-service to our clinical teams to be able, so that the clinicians can order their own genetic testing um, after they show the video to their patients. And then those patients that have pathogenic variants or likely pathogenic variants are certainly then referred to our genetics team for full disclosure of their results by genetic counselors. But in this way, the clinicians have the results that they need in a rapid fashion to make treatment decisions, et cetera. Um, and even patients with VUSs and other scenarios really could benefit from seeing a genetic counselor as well with point of care. We've also um, developed a fast track model, which is taking point of care and moving it within our cancer genetics program. So we have genetics coordinators that are seeing these patients, showing the video, going through the informed consent and ordering testing. And then they're even able to you know, go over results, although pathogenic variants and, and uh, patients with the you know, mutations are still having their disclosure by genetic counselors, but it's within the genetics team. Um, so we've had to think you know, outside the box in terms of thinking of ways of delivery of this information. For somatic testing, we work very closely with our clinician teams to ensure that you know, developing these pathways. So if a patient is tested with, say, metastatic prostate cancer, not only you know, are they getting their somatic testing, but they already qualify for germline testing. So to whichever pathway they choose, make the referral or do the point of care and order the genetic testing. Because even with somatic testing, as I think Dr. Pritchard said, 10% of patients will have missed germline findings. And so, you know, it's really important to ensure that those patients that meet national guidelines have their germline testing. And to do the pretest um, informed consent for somatic testing to say that there is a chance that there could be a germline finding even when the tumor is being tested, um, et cetera, so that the patient you know, understands that this could be a, um, you know, a, an issue that arises. Um, but I think in essence, it really does take working together between the genetics programs and the clinical teams to think about ways that um, are workable now and to help enhance the access. You know, and that, that's excellent, you know, just for the audience out there, for the, for the GCs, a lot of the commercial companies that um, offer the testing also offer like virtual genetic counseling. And I think there's just such a, there's, you know, the, the thing that we talked about at the beginning of this seminar is 
if we kind of get people tested early who are appropriate, hormone sensitive metastatic disease, even high risk, you know, that they're going to have progression. There might be even a time that we think about uniform testing for everybody with prostate cancer, who knows when that goes on. Then like a lot of this can happen deliberately and slowly, not at the last minute when you have MCRPC and you're making a decision about therapeutics. Um, you know, Dr. Simonek, uh, we work together, but I say in our can't even in our cancer center, there's so many different models and ways that I've done it with you. You know, where do you see the role of the of the genetic counselor? When should I be like saying this is when I have to refer to a genetic counselor? I, I can't take this burden on myself. And when should I say like, well, maybe I should be thinking about doing this. and I don't want to have a barrier where I'm not testing a patient. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so I think in some part that's going to come down to like each individual clinician's level of comfort. Um, and I think part of it will kind of depend on the complexity of the family history. So it could be the situation that it's fairly straightforward what the patient is reporting during the consult to you. Um, but could be the situation that maybe there's a lot of history, there's like rare cancers that are happening or cancers that maybe you're not as familiar with that could have indications for other kinds of genetic testing outside of prostate cancer potentially. Um, maybe it's the situation that a patient has a lot of questions and you, you know, there's only so much time in clinic. And so sometimes it might be the situation that it's best for them to meet with a genetic counselor separately. Um, but also as, as Dr. Geary mentioned earlier, if there's a mutation that's already known about in the family, I think it's important to be able to have an opportunity to talk to a genetic counselor because it could be a much more targeted conversation about the risks and what this is gonna mean for that patient and the family versus if we're just doing more broad kind of panel testing based on family history. So I think it's it's partially like clinician comfort and, and kind of experience and what the patient is kind of asking from you and whether or not you think that that's gonna be the best fit. Yeah, and my personal approach is particularly germline alterations, likely pathogenic, pathogenic. I, I tend to definitely refer to the genetic counselor. And then and then the uh, um, somatic, I'm okay handling it somewhat myself. I usually initiate testing if I think the person really needs it myself because I think that makes easier workflow. And then just like Brittany said, if the patient's just diving deep into the questions, that's also for my clinic an automatic referral to the genetic counselor so that they can spend that deep dive. So um, I can't thank you enough. This is such a good discussion. You know, Dr. Simonak, Dr. Geary, Dr. Pritchard, I've learned a lot during this during this time, and I'm and I'm sure this is going to be a tremendous help to the audience. And this really um, concludes our our seminar. Um, please access the course evaluation to claim credit and a certificate at auanet.org backslash university. And I hope that everyone does have a great holidays. I really can't thank the um, faculty that was with me tonight enough, Dr. Geary, Pritchard, and Simonak. And I really can't thank the AUA and all the staff that made this webinar possible as well. So thanks so much and, and uh, happy holidays to everybody. <laughs>